All right, so Galatians 4, 21 through 31. Paul says to the Galatians, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. And um, we just pray, Lord, that as Paul is bringing all of this discussion about the two covenants to a conclusion. I pray that that conclusion would settle firmly in our hearts and uh, that we would find out where we stand in regard to the covenants and that we would stand there firmly. So Lord, teach us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, please be seated. Hey guys, could you, could you turn these lights down a little bit, please? All right, can you guys still see me? Oh, good, good. All right. I didn't ask for any comments. <laughs> All right, return with me, if you would, to verse 21. Paul says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? Do you not hear the law? So as far as the, the progression of the book of Galatians is concerned, it doesn't appear that these, these believers have fully plunged themselves into what Paul called in Galatians chapter 1, a perversion of the gospel. And as he's defined the, this, this perversion, it's basically a hybrid between the gospel and the law of Moses. There's this mingling of the two together. Uh, they haven't gone all the way into it, but Paul says they are desiring it. They're looking to basically fall headlong into it. Now, so far, they have adopted, they've gone into some of those things. Um, they've been observing, as Paul said earlier, the Jewish calendar. They are keeping Sabbath. They're observing the new moons, the feasts, both the sabbatical year and the year of Jubilee. And then as Galatians chapter 5, verse 2 indicates, they were considering their they're right on the threshold of considering what would be the final step into all things related to the law of Moses. At least they would be able to go as far as the law would allow a Gentile to go, as we've talked about before. When a Gentile would convert to Judaism, uh, he remained a second-class citizen. He couldn't enjoy, as it were, all of the things that the law allowed a Jew to do. Okay? So this final step that they were looking into was circumcision. 
But it doesn't appear yet that they've done that. But Paul says to them, do you not hear the law? That is to say, do you not understand the significance of being under both the jurisdiction and the rule of law, this legal system? Now, as we've gone through uh, the last few chapters of Galatians, Paul has made very clear that the law curses, condemns, and kills. That's what its purpose was. It was to strip the sinner of their self-righteousness so that they would have no help in them, no, no uh, hope, rather, no confidence in themselves. And then they would look to Christ for salvation, for righteousness, and for life. We also talked about how the law requires a, a perfect obedience. It requires moral perfection. And James says that if you keep the whole law, yet you fail in one point in the law, that you have broken all of the law. You're guilty of the whole thing. Because the law, as a covenant, as a law, it's not a lot of laws, really, in the end. It's just one. And so if you fail at one point in the covenant, you're guilty of breaking all of it, which just incurs the curse of the law that Paul talked about. He said in Galatians 3.10, Cursed is the one who does not continue in all things which are written in the law to do them. you got to do it all perfectly or you're cursed. So Paul is saying, have you really thought this through? Have you thought about this? And Paul knows they haven't, so he's going to offer some assistance to them. Verse 22, he says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. So he's going all the way back to Genesis, and he's going to draw an illustration out of the story there of the patriarch Abraham, who had initially at least two wives and a son with each wife. If you've read further on into the narrative, uh, after Sarah's death, Abraham married again uh, to a woman named Keturah. And I can't remember how many kids I had. I think it's five or six more children. But that's not here nor there. It's not useful to what Paul is trying to illustrate. I just didn't want you to think that, well, that he didn't have more wives. But anyway, he had three wives total. His first wife, uh, we know, was Sarah. And Sarah was a free woman. His second wife, Hagar, was Sarah's female servant. Okay? Abraham had his first child with the bondwoman. And then some years later, his wife Sarah had a son also. But things were a little quirky. Verse 23, he says, But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. So Abraham took his second wife, Hagar, because Sarah was barren, meaning she could have no children. So instead of waiting on God to bless him with a child, meaning through Sarah, Abraham took a second wife to help things along, which translates into this. It means that he wasn't trusting God enough to fulfill his promises. So instead of living by faith in the promises of God, I'll just come up with my own plan and do things in my own strength. Or as Paul says, it would be according to the flesh. According to the flesh. Abraham probably thought that correcting Sarah's barrenness was you know, beyond the realm of possibility. Or he looked at how old his wife was and he said, she's just too old anyway. Okay? And she was old. So in order to help things along, he took another wife, Hagar, a slave woman, and he had a child with her named Ishmael. And so now that he has child, could he say that God fulfilled his promise? No, he could not. 
The child of the bondwoman was not the child that God promised to him. This child was a product of Abraham's unbelief and self-effort, which is the Bible's way of saying it was done without faith. It was done without God. But because God always, without exception, keeps his unconditional promises, we know that Sarah gave birth to a son when she was how old? She was 90. 90. Who would volunteer for that at 90? So the child was truly a child of promise, a miracle child. Now, as I said at first service, this story from Genesis is very interesting, and there's all forms of spiritual moral application that we can gain from it, especially that polygamy is always bad. It never goes well. Uh, but there's all kinds of things. But what does it have to do with what we've been talking about in Genesis? That's verse 24. Paul says, which things are symbolic? For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar, which things, these things are symbolic. So to begin with, in regard to the two covenants, Hagar symbolizes the covenant made at Mount Sinai, where the law of Moses was given. And he says that this first covenant, the old covenant, gives birth to bondage. And then Hagar's son, Ishmael, he would then be a symbol of the bondage. It's all symbolic. Okay. Now, when Paul says that these things are symbolic for a New Testament truth, uh, there is the temptation that some people have to say that Paul is now uh, saying that the Old Testament historical narrative is not historical. Uh, that's not what he's saying. He's just borrowing from the story and, and using it to illustrate the point that he's been trying to make. Okay? Paul absolutely believed in the historical narrative of Genesis, and he refers to it frequently for moral authority and other things. In fact, he refers to Genesis and Deuteronomy more than any other chapters of, of the Old Testament. Okay? But there's something about this that I, I want to discuss. I want to provide a warning because as you listen to Bible teachers, and you can catch this on uh, Christian radio a lot, I hear it a lot, and I find myself arguing with uh, the pastor or the teacher over this, and it's because of a habit that they have. And what they've done is they've, they've looked at what Paul does with the story from Genesis, and they think that that gives them license to do the same with the rest of Scripture. Uh, that is a very strange conclusion, especially from people who are evangelicals who believe the Bible is the final authority on everything. And uh, so I want to discuss what they're doing with you and demonstrate why it's dangerous, why it's presumptuous. Okay? What they do is this. They, they take an old, or rather they take any story from the Old Testament, and they begin to assign symbols to all the characters and what they did, and they're saying that this particular character and what they did is a type of Christ or who they are and what they did has New Testament fulfillment. Okay. Now, this isn't the same as giving uh, a moral example from Old Testament uh, scriptures or illustrations of spiritual truths. When people use the word type or they use the word shadow to describe someone or something from the Old Testament, what they're saying is this. They're saying that God embedded a meaning into the text, Old Testament text, that is then fulfilled in the New Testament. Okay? Now, as you listen to Bible teachers do that, especially if they're well-stated and they have some eloquence, it really makes for fascinating Bible study. But you have to understand, there's a massive difference between Paul doing this, who was inspired by the Holy Spirit, 
and some guy today who is not. Do you get it? It's different. It's one thing for the Holy Spirit to assign symbolic meaning to his own text, but it's different when someone who is not the author of Scripture to assign meaning to a text. You know, the Holy Spirit can do whatever he wants with the Scriptures. It's his book. Amen? It's not for us to meddle with, to fiddle with. We don't have the right, we don't have the authority to give it meaning that God never intended. Okay, we're not the Holy Spirit. So this is actually what happens when we assign symbols and types and shadows without the inspiration of the Spirit. We end up becoming the authority on biblical interpretation. Do you want to be the authority on biblical interpretation? You know, Jesus came, and there's a few stories where he demonstrated that he alone is the authority on biblical interpretation. I don't want to align myself with Christ as any authority. Okay, my job as a pastor is to discover meaning in the text of Scripture and then restate it so that it ensures that my audience hears the Word of God and not me, not me. We don't want to be the authority. When we cease discovering meaning from a text and we start assigning it to the text, a meaning that cannot be drawn from the text itself, we become some kind of arbitrator, some kind of arbitrator to Scripture. And some Bible teachers believe that when the details from an Old Testament story parallel those in the New Testament, that they have a basis for symbolism and typology. Okay? In other words, whenever there are similarities between an Old Testament and New Testament narrative, God intended to symbolize the old, symbolizes the new. And for the old to find its fulfillment and significance, we have to look to the new. And what I say is, who says? Who says? You? The Bible teacher? Where in Scripture do we find a precedent for that? What chapter, what verse tells us that we have the authority to do that with the Bible? I mean, if I had one point of direction from the Scriptures to do that, I would feel free to do that. But there's just nothing in the Scriptures. There's nothing at all. And if similarities are what constitute a basis for symbolism, how then did Paul come to these conclusions from Genesis? I mean, what is it about the narrative in Genesis that lends itself to Paul's conclusion without the assistance of the Holy Spirit? If you step back for a minute and you read Genesis, how many of you would draw those conclusions from it? Nobody would have without the Holy Spirit. Okay. Also, among the, the various Bible teachers that use this, we might say this method of interpretation, uh, people have this idea that they're all in agreement, that they look at the Old Testament and they go, all of them at the same time, in consensus, come to the same conclusions. It's not the case. The disagreement among them is far and wide. Okay? It's all over the place. Why would they differ? They disagree because there's nothing definitive in the text to provide such a concrete conclusion. There's just nothing there. Okay? But over time, those who say it most convincingly, those that are the most eloquent, have the most widely received view on the scriptures. But what kind of guideline is that? Just because someone says it convincingly. Hitler was convincing, wasn't he? We don't want to use him as a guideline. Okay, politicians have been very convincing, but they've been very misleading. We don't want that as our guideline. It's too subjective, okay? no matter how well things are stated. Okay, you should be, when you hear stuff from people, even me, you should be asking the question, how do you know that? How do you know that your conclusion is true? And if they haven't got that conclusion from the text, from the context, using the grammar and the language that's there, 
you have every right to dismiss everything that they've said, okay? And you should, you should. Now, I've noticed over the years that those who teach this way, and they do it well, is their audience is very impressed. It's ooh, it's ah. And they think that this Bible teacher is some kind of guru, some kind of Bible mystic. But then at the end of the day, I wonder, what was the real spiritual benefit to the audience? Nothing. There's no benefit to that. Okay? There's none. Now, I actually, early on in my ministry, being caught up with some of these uh, impressive Bible teachers, I caught myself doing this until I backed up and realized that this is me doing this and not the Holy Spirit. It's true. It's true. The real truth is there is nothing hidden in any text of Scripture. Don't let anybody tell you that there's meaning below the text or there's meaning behind the text. And if you were mature enough, you could see it. All that does is elevate the teacher to a higher status than you. Okay? That's not the case. There is no deeper meaning than what God has communicated on the surface of the text. The plain reading of any text in its context is what God meant and intended for us to understand. I think a lot of people fail to understand that God actually wants us to understand his word. And so what he's done as a good father is he's made his word like low-hanging fruit so that anybody that wants it can get it. Anybody. Okay. Our typology of the scriptures, though, without the assistance of the Spirit, is just a guess. Okay. We need to be looking to Christ and the apostles for them to give us the interpretation. Okay. Just as we see Paul here doing, he's doing it that way. And we can take his interpretation and we can run with it with confidence and authority. But wherever he doesn't or wherever the Holy Spirit doesn't, we need to back away from it. Now, that doesn't preclude that there are lots of types, shadows, and figures and all of that in the scriptures. Uh, but we don't want to be the arbitrator of those things. Some examples that we've already talked about is Colossians 2, 16 through 17. And that's where Paul says that the Jewish dietary regulations, the festivals, new moons, and Sabbaths, he says, are all shadows, but the substance is Christ. The reality is Christ. Those things we're anticipating, looking forward to Christ. Also, the author of Hebrews says that the earthly temple was a material replica of the heavenly temple, and that things in the temple symbolize things about Jesus and his ministry and his sacrifice. Again, Peter referred to baptism as a type. So what's significant about those three examples? It's from Scripture. It's not from my, my brain. Okay? It's not from me. And that's what we need to watch out for. They came from the Spirit, not from some modern Bible interpreter. Let's be careful with the Word. And you know, don't you think that there's enough low-hanging fruit to occupy ourselves with so that we don't get distracted by the mystical things? I would say this, as soon as you have all of the low-hanging fruit mastered in the scripture, then you maybe you can start looking at other things. But until then, you should stick with the plain reading of the text. What do you guys think? Okay, I like it. All right, back to our text, verse 24. Paul says, these things are symbolic of the two covenants. The first covenant was established at Mount Sinai, which he says is symbolized by Hagar, the bondwoman, who gives birth to bondage. So Ishmael then symbolizes bondage. Again, Sarah symbolizes the covenant made at Calvary, another mountain, which gives birth to freedom. So Sarah, Sarah's son, Isaac, symbolizes freedom. Freedom. Verse 25, 
He says, for this Hagar is Mount Sinai. Where does he say Mount Sinai is? Arabia. How many of you guys have heard that Mount Sinai is in Arabia? Before second service, somebody handed me a DVD on the true location of Mount Sinai. How funny is that? Okay. So traditionally, the, the, uh, the, the site of Mount Sinai is, is thought to be on the Sinai Peninsula. But Paul here throws this down and he says, Sinai in Arabia, in Arabia. And now, I don't know uh, if you've been keeping up with some of the research that's been done, but uh, there's a lot of convincing research that Mount Sinai actually is in Arabia, south and east of the Aqaba. So when you look at the, the, the Red Sea, it looks like fingers. In between is the Sinai Peninsula. We tip traditionally, can everybody see my fingers? Okay, that the Israelites crossed the Red Sea here. But the research now is saying, no, they crossed the Red Sea over here into Arabia. And there's some fascinating evidence for that. Um, you can get on Google and look at it. Uh, this video that has been handed to me is new uh, with the latest research. I'll watch it. Maybe we'll report it here on a Thursday night or something. Interesting stuff. And by the way, uh, who do you think I think is correct about the location, tradition or Paul? I think Paul's probably right. I don't think he's confused, uh, especially being under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Um, but anyway, um, that's, that's not really in the course of our study this morning. Back to our text. Paul says, for this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. And he says that it corresponds with Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. So Hagar symbolizes Mount Sinai, the very location that God gave the old covenant, the law of Moses. He says this corresponds with Jerusalem, which is actually the headquarters of the old covenant, where the temple was and where the law was enforced. Okay, that's where the Jewish high council, the Sanhedrin was. This is the, the epicenter of Judaism, the law of Moses. But notice that the children, Paul says, of this covenant are in bondage. They are not free. The constituents, they're primarily represented in Jerusalem. He says they're not free. They're in slavery. This is the same way as saying the old covenant is a system of legal bondage. So when Paul said to the Galatians, do you not hear the law? He's referring to the bondage of the law. Bondage, he says, if you do this, is all that you have to look forward to. Have you really thought this through? Verse 26, but, <clears throat> excuse me, the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. Now, by this time, Paul is assuming that we've put the rest of the illustration together in our heads. The Jerusalem above is the city of the new covenant and the new covenant people where the citizens are free. The citizens are free. Sarah, the free woman, symbolizing the new covenant established at Calvary, corresponds with the heavenly Jerusalem, which is now in freedom with her children. Okay. There's our two different neighborhoods. Uh, if you were here a couple weeks ago, uh, I talked about two different subdivisions, and each had their own rules, their covenants. A, uh, I forget now what they call that, the homeowner society. Okay. Anybody here live in one of those covenant neighborhoods? Okay, good. My brother does, and I, I think it's nuts. <laughs> but anyway... My illustration is similar to Paul's, is that there is an old covenant neighborhood, and there's a new covenant neighborhood. And 
the covenant and rules of one neighborhood cannot ever apply to the other neighborhood. It's the same as Paul's talking about here. The old covenant does not apply to the new covenant and vice versa. Not the same. There's a neighborhood of bondage, which is under the dominion of the law, and there's the neighborhood of freedom, which is under grace. Paul's asking the Galatians, why do you want to go back to bondage? Verse 27, for it is written, rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. So Paul is quoting Isaiah 54.1 to demonstrate that Sarah is ultimately more fruitful than Hagar. Because barrenness means nothing to God. What eventually bears the most fruit is what follows a promise of God, not human effort, as it was with Hagar. Verse 28, Paul says, Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. Are children of promise. So just as Isaac was born according to promise, new covenant people have been born into the new covenant according to promise. According to promise. You remember, as, as uh, Paul has been developing all this, Abraham believed in God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Was this before the law or in the law? It was before. He was accounted righteous before the law was ever given. Okay? And that kind of righteousness is then imputed to the new covenant believer apart from law, just like it was for Abraham. We have it by grace, through faith, without the law of Moses. Verse 29, but as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. Now Paul's being more specific here. He's referring to Genesis chapter 21, verse 8 through 12. At that time in the narrative, Isaac came of age to be weaned, and so Abraham threw a big party for him to celebrate. But Ishmael, the teenage son of the slave woman, was mocking Isaac. And so Paul's now drawing some symbolism from this. Just as Ishmael, the son of the bondwoman, mocked the freeborn child Isaac, Paul is saying the Judaizers, who Paul equated with the children of the bondwoman, they persecute those who are born of the free woman, the Christians. Who gave Paul the most trouble in his missionary journeys? The Jews. The non-believing Jews, they got him stoned, they got him beat, they got him kicked out of multiple cities. They were the biggest problem for Paul. And these are the constituents of the Old Covenant who he says are in bondage. Okay? Those in bondage to the law mistreated those living in freedom. Now today in the West, you know, those that are the constituents of the law, they don't have the freedom to persecute us. But as I've engaged with them, they always look down on us, condescending. So what's the conclusion of all this? Verse 30, Paul says, Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So when Sarah saw Ishmael mocking Isaac, this is what she said to Abraham. That's what she said. And in Genesis 21, 12, God reaffirms it and commands Abraham to get rid of Hagar and Ishmael. And now he's saying, we need to apply this today. We need to maintain the symbolism. So the allegory is clear. The free woman and her children cannot ever coexist with the bondwoman and her children. That's what he's saying. Okay. 
The two covenants, they're not compatible. Law and grace, they cannot go together. They are what we would call mutually exclusive. Mutually exclusive. Jesus gave an illustration. Some wonder if he was referring to the covenants, but the illustration works here. It's like new wine and old wineskins. What happens to the old wineskins when you pour new wine into them? The new wine ferments and bursts the old wineskins that have been stretched and dried to their maximum capacity. Okay, yeah. So what do we do with the old covenant then, according to that passage and all of its regulations, just as the text says? We get it away from us because, as we've said, the covenant of grace, the covenant of law cannot coexist. They're incompatible. And the old covenant, Paul says, brings its constituents into bondage, into bondage. Now, I find Paul's conclusion quite ironic because those who want to keep the law, they often say to me that they want to obey all of God's commandments. And this was recently said to me again by someone. But what about this commandment? What about this commandment that commands us to cast out the old covenant and to cling to the new covenant? Aren't you disobeying this command by adhering to the law? Most definitely. Through the blood of Christ, God has set aside the old covenant of law, Hebrews 8.13, and in its place, he established the new covenant of grace. And so no one in the new covenant, no one at all really, is obligated to the old covenant. And wherever the old covenant regulations appear, we have a responsibility, we have a moral obligation before God to do what? To cast it out. That's right. Because of the command here, we cannot allow even the smallest hint of legalism in our worship or in our lives, lest we fall into bondage and disobey the scriptures. So Paul concludes verse 31, so then brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. We are free. But what freeborn child desires bondage? It's always mystifying to me that those that are in the new covenant want to take upon themselves bondage-forming regulations when we have such clear instruction from the scriptures. Typically, people do not go from the freedom of grace into law unless they've been bewitched, like the Galatians. Like Paul says in Galatians 3.1, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has put you under their spell that you would believe this garbage and do these things? It's very strange. We are free... So if you would turn your page, if it's a different page in your Bible, the Galatians 5.1, to this next conclusion that Paul says. He says, and mind you, the, the chapter break is unfortunate because as he's already said, he said that, so brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. And then he says, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Do not. The yoke of bondage is the law of Moses. And that's also clarified by Peter in Acts chapter 15. Listen, let me give you another translation to help bring some clarity. The NASB, New American Standard Bible says, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. That's a sweet declaration. It was for freedom that he set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Let me give you one more translation, the New Living Translation. So Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free. 
and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. Understand, we have two imperatives here in this verse. So we have another new covenant command here that conflicts with old covenant demands. Yeah. You cannot be free from the law, yet be under the rule of law, can you? You can't. You cannot experience the grace of the new covenant as you meddle with the old covenant. If you obey the one, you disobey the other. You have to decide which covenant you're in because you cannot obey both simultaneously. You're either obedient to Christ and loyal to him, or you'll be obedient to the law and loyal to Moses. Pick your loyalties. That's what this is about. But if you belong to Christ, Paul is saying you need to separate yourself from the law and live in freedom according to grace. It's not optional for the new covenant believer. They're not, they can't be together. They're not compatible. And you are free, and Paul says you must remain free. Amen? So now the challenge is, I believe, for the new covenant believer is because we don't have all of our the, we might say the, the terms and conditions of the covenant just laid out for us in mechanical form, the challenge for us is to learn how to live by grace, the freedom of grace, to walk by the Spirit so that He would govern our lives instead of an external set of rules. Okay? Now, after we get over this last hump of Paul's discussion and rebuke to the Galatians, he's going to get into all of that. How then do we live if we're free from the law and we're constituents of grace, okay? Until then, read ahead. I don't mind you guys spoiling things by studying your Bible, so do that. So why don't you stand up and we'll pray. If you have any questions, uh, I would love to engage with you. And if you have any prayer needs, I'll be up front here to, to pray with you. You guys, you should give a hand to the worship team. They just hang out all day. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word, and thank you for the privilege that we have to look into it, to hear your voice. And Lord, we don't want to just understand. We want to live according to what you've taught us, to what you've communicated. And Lord, Paul really wanted us to know by the Holy Spirit the difference between the covenants and where it is that we stand before you, what our obligation is to you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just clearly communicate that to us so that we can live according to what you've called us to live by. Because Lord, we want to obey. We want to live according to your word. But Lord, clearly some of it is not for us in this covenant. And so Lord, I pray that you teach us and then fill us with your spirit. Help us to walk in his power. Help us to be students of grace. Lord, that we might be well-pleasing to you. So Lord, thank you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.